Thanks so much for having me. You know, there's so much talk these days about about work and returning to the workplace because I know for a fact that a lot of people were getting ready to go back to the office in the new year. And here we are near the end of January. I, I gather that clearly hasn't happened. Um, what now? I think the biggest transition we need to make is honestly to stop working and living like we're waiting for the moment when we go back to the office and everything goes back to the world of like November 2019. You know, I I hate to be the bearer of what will feel like bad news to some people, but the world of November 2019 is gone. It's just gone. And there are some really painful parts of that. I, for one, mourn the death of my beautiful work wardrobe. Um, But there are also some real joys. And I think a lot of people have discovered the freedom, the creative opportunity, the flexibility, the focus that comes from working from home. And for people who've enjoyed that for a couple of years now, uh, it's not like we're all holding our breath to get back to the office. I was going to say, what is the... I mean, I've been in office environments, obviously, for a long time. Um, I know why people were happy to be working from home, uh, might have been eager to go back to the office, at least part time as well. But to start with managers and bosses, what is it with the attachment to the office environment that seems to be so prevalent amongst management and senior management within organizations? I think there are uh, good reasons and bad reasons that people are attached to the office and particularly particularly managers. Um, the, the really legitimate reason is that there are things that just work better when we're in the same. And, you know, I think we've all had enough video calls now to feel pretty convinced that being in a room with our fellow humans generally works better. And then there's also, you know, a lot of these informal interactions that happen when we're in the same space where, you know, instead of having to book a Zoom meeting, you just pop your head over into somebody's office, you ask them a question and you get unbottlenecked much more quickly. And of course, that also promotes a sense of trust, collaboration, people on the have a better sense of one another. And all of that is, you know, genuinely great and honestly, a reason to look back to look forward to getting back into the office, uh, you know, as you say, I hope a couple of days a week. And I think once we have that opportunity, people will will really have the best of both worlds. But but the truth of the matter is there's also some maybe not so great reasons that managers in some organizations are impatient to go back. I mean, one is what my my undergraduate economics professor would have said is sunk costs, right? They're paying for the office space and it, it grates them that they've they're locked into this five-year lease and nobody's in there. Well, Econ professor says it's sunk cost. Don't let that drive the decision. If people are more productive at home, don't make them come into the office just because you've got a real estate bill. Um, Another even more concerning reason, I think, is that managers are used to like older management, you know, the behind you and see what's on your screen. Um, Doesn't have to be that sinister, but, you know, when you're in an office and you out over your fields, you see that your employees are hard at work. And I think it's been hard for a lot of managers to like shake this nagging feeling that if I'm not watching them, they're actually playing golf and they've just like figured out how to make it look like they're working. And, you know, that is something that we all need to let go of because it's bad it's bad for their relationship with their employees, and it doesn't actually yield better outcomes from the point of view of productivity. You've mentioned, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff recently about how bosses and managers have to adapt to new realities for their employees. And you're also a big, ad- big advocate of employees adapting or you know managing their bosses a little bit under these new circumstances. 
look, part of the reason somebody is a manager typically is because they're more experienced. But in the world of remote work, we all kind of started over. And there are a lot of uh, managers who had no prior experience managing people who weren't directly in their line of sight. And so uh, some managers adapted really well, some managers adapt very well. And if you were somebody who um, had remote work experience or had the ability to figure out how to work effectively while you were at home and your manager didn't get with the program, you might well have found yourself in a situation where you essentially needed to teach your manager how to manage you as a remote worker. And of course, not everyone was in a position to do that. One of the things I found interesting was that uh, companies that have started during the pandemic as remote companies are actually doing pretty well because they had to figure this out right away. And their model is remote. There is no, let's go back to the way it was in November, 2019 or March, 2020. Absolutely. And we saw that with companies largely or exclusively remote before the pandemic. I mean, you know, if you were already running a purely remote operation, or if you were a company that was super global and had really, really integrated teams where people were doing all their meetings by Zoom anyhow, then the transition was no big deal. And, you know, I think this gets at what you were asking about, like, well, what do you do now that you don't know when the office is going to reopen? And this is why I think it's a new reality that we just need to adapt to on a permanent basis. COVID, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like COVID- COVID may turn out to be seasonal. And even if we largely get on top of it, and it's not like it's been the past few years, we're going to have these moments like this past month where like suddenly everybody in the office is sick and you just kind of have to shut down the office for a month. And if you become the kind of organization that is really able to function as well remotely as you do in the office, those things are no big deal. But if you have this hyper-structured approach to hybrid work, or like we must be in the office or we fall apart as an organization, um, then you're going to have problems when you have your next crisis, whether it's COVID, whether it's wildfires, whether it's floods. Like we live in a crazy world. Stuff happens and it keeps you from coming to the office. I think I know where you're going to go with this. But if you had to, if there were one or two words that you would describe the way that employees and employers must now be, what would it be? The word that really will have to drive our future is autonomy. We can't work or manage like we're on a 19th century factory floor where everybody is a widget and you're trying to keep people at their loom as long as possible and as interdependent as possible. We now live in a world where many of us just are, you know, one dog, one computer, um, working on our own a lot of the time. And if you can uh, win the autonomy, to determine your own schedule, to work when you are at your most productive, whether that's midnight or 5 a.m. If you have the freedom to get up and go for a walk in the middle of the day because it refreshes you and resets you and it helps you be more connected to other people if you've actually seen another human in the course of the day, all of that will contribute to much more productive employees. But we need to give our Latitude and managers need to give their employees that kind of autonomy. And we need to trust one another to figure out how to work effectively, even if we're not in the same place. 
I'm back with Dr. Alexandra Samuel, author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are, and a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. We've been talking about work, back to work, what didn't happen, what was supposed to happen in early January for many people um, didn't unfold because of Omicron. And uh, we talked about what may what the future may hold. One of the big other subjects in war about you know in the workplace these days, of course, it's really American-driven, I gather, but it's the great resignation. We've been talking about this now for a while. On average, something like four million people a month in the US leaving their jobs, looking for other things to do. What's driving that as far as you can tell? You know, there's there's a number of factors. Um, you know, definitely one part of it, people feeling irritated, frustrated, or just plain unwilling to go back to the office. And, you know, the U.S. has really been out in front of the rest of the world, you know, frankly, I think not in the smartest way in terms of of reopening offices. They're so keen to get everybody back to the office. And, you know, plenty of people are just walking because they're not prepared to do it, either because they're scared of the health impact or because they don't feel like paying, you know, extra money to commute or just they've gotten used to working from home and they like flexibility. So that's part of it. Um, Part of it is burnout, right? People are zonked after two years of pandemic crisis living, working in ways that really don't make a whole lot of sense because people didn't have a chance to make plans for the transition to remote. And then I think um, a really healthy reason, you know, we kind of woke up from our um, collective trance about work being at the center of our lives. And many people in spending more time working from home, having their annoying children at home all day discovered they liked their annoying children. I discovered I was like the last person ever had the fantasy of being a stay at home mom. And when I um, returned to working remotely about eight years ago, it was because I, I needed to homeschool one of my kids. And I mean, if you told me 20 years ago, I would do that. I would have thought you were insane. Like what a nightmare. I love it. I love having a really family. And it was never what I wanted. And I think a lot of people have had those kind of epiphanies and don't want to go back to the old way. We're not seeing quite the same thing in this country. And I gather it's just because we're not quite as mobile, but we're not quite seeing the great resignation in Canada in the same way we're seeing it in the US. And I think sometimes that's missed in all this, in all the noise and the coverage about what's going on in the US. Well, and part of that, I think, is because in in Canada, we haven't been pushing people back into the office as quickly. Right. So, right, you know, that's and 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 you're also right about the um, mobility piece. I mean, there's there's a real labor shortage in, in the U.S. right now. There's no shortage of opportunities if you want to change jobs, particularly because there are so many positions now that are open for remote employment. And so, you know, you can live anywhere and still have a cabillion job opportunities because you can really apply for jobs all over the country and all, even around the world. Uh, and this will stay in the U.S. and will stay with job opportunities because uh, the state of New York, um, as of April the 1st of 2022, are bringing in this new law that I found really interesting, which is having to post the um, minimum, or I guess the salary range in job ads. And it's always one of those things I've been puzzled by. I hear a lot about it. People complain about it a lot too. When you look at a job app or a job ad and there's no salary range in it, what do you make of, what do you make of the law and what do you make of, of how it'll work or if it will work? You know, it's, it's funny. My thinking on this has been really influenced by a, a colleague Robertson, who's a consultant on diversity and inclusion. And and we wrote an article together for HBR a few months ago, looking at the intersection of of hybrid work and DEI and trying to think about how these pieces are going to fit together. Harvard Harvard Business Review, if anyone out there doesn't know. Yes. Very uh, uh, acronym. It's a great, Um, great great magazine. (laughs) 
Thank you. Sorry, go on. Of course. And and so, you know, Tara has been a really big proponent of, of publishing um, salary information, and it's made me aware of the impact it has. You know, when you don't share salary, um, you're really not letting people know whether the job is at their level, whether it's going to meet their financial needs. Um, and if you want to be able to uh, attract a wider dates, that level of transparency is going to, first of all, encourage more applicants, but also it's a, a pretty important contributor to, to a more equitable approach to pay. We know that women tend to get paid less than men. People of color are often disadvantaged in salary um, that's actually paid once you get the job offer. And if you don't tell people what the salary range is, you're going to have that situation where the white guy's ask for more money than the female candidates, than the candidates of color. And when you publish the salary range as part of the job ad, people of color know what they can ask for. Women know what they can ask for. Women of color know what they can ask for. And you end up with a work. People are actually getting paid. I know this is going to sound bananas based on their job rather than their, you know, ethnic or gender identity. I mean, and it is, I mean, this is being driven by the New York City Commission on Human Rights. So essentially, mm-hmm. if a failure to include a salary range would be considered a discriminatory practice under the New York City Commission on Human Rights. So, so clearly a, a point that you made there. Why have people been, why in general do you think the trend has always been not to include salary um, well, in I'm, job ads? I mean, look, I, I say this as somebody who was an employer, or I guess I am an employer. You don't always, look, when you're an employer, you're to save money. You don't want to pay people more than what it costs to get them, right? From a, I mean, look, we we now know that paying people well contributes to engagement and trust and builds um, uh, engagement, you know, commitment on the part of employees. But, you know, traditionally, a lot of employers have sort of taken the approach of any, if I'm paying $1 more to get this person than I had to, that's a waste of a dollar. And so, I think part of it is just, you know, for employers, a way of saving money. I'm not going to pay more than I have to. And then the other part of it is um, once you start uh, publishing salary ranges, people kind of know what one another are making. And I mean, it's exactly why the the law is passed. You're just going to start to get pressure to pay underpaid employees. You know, if I know that, you know, the jobs in sales are just as uh, time consuming as the jobs in marketing, but you're paying the marketing people more. That's a weird example because nobody does that. But it it creates pressure to, to create some pay equity across job categories. And of course, employers don't necessarily want that either. I mean, and, and even now it's not common. I gather there's just Colorado uh, so far, New York, mm-hmm. this one. And then I think I, I was reading Maryland, Washington State, California, all have different, upon request, uh, you, you need to disclose the salary range. Do you think it's something we could see here? Well, it's funny you said that because I already, you know, where I see it here, I'm part of a wonderful Facebook group um, called Girl Gang is uh, a community of, of women in Vancouver who, women and non-binary people in Vancouver who work in media and, and marketing communications and other fields. And um, one of the norms or requirements really in that, you're sharing a job opportunity, you need to share the salary range. And I see that in more and more peer and professional support groups, that expectation um, that if you're sharing a job opportunity, tell us what it pays. Otherwise, it's not a, a, an opportunity that's ready for sharing. I mean, uh, even the New York uh, law, as as passed, certainly talked about the fact that it was uh, that it was put there to to try and try and benefit those who've tr- traditionally been uh, discriminated against when it came to salaries. So, so a good, the transparency of it seems like a really good idea. It'd be nice, I think, to see it in this country more generally as well. But a good start if you're doing it online. 
Well, and I think it's especially important, frankly, in a in a world of remote work, because, you know, it used to be that there was like a little bit of an underground within an office where people would share that information informally. But if you're not in a if you're not in the office, you're not seeing each other face to face, then the whisper network isn't going to work the same way. And, you know, I sort of think it's funny when you think about it. Some of that was starting to happen, actually, in Google Sheets, even before the pandemic, people these Google Sheets to share. Like I was, I use one called Who Pays Writers, where um, writers share what they're getting paid per word in different publications. And, you know, there have been ones where people share their salaries within the tech industry so that you know what people within your company or other companies are making. And, you know, that's exactly what um, what we need to do if we want to create pressure for, for pay to be more equitable. We started at remote work. We wound up with the great resignation. We spoke about including uh, laws to force people to include salary ranges and job ads and came all the way full circle back to remote work. So it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure, Dr. Alexandra Samuel. Interesting conversation. It's so nice to speak with you. <laughs>